Please take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, if you're visiting with us. Uh, we are nearing the end of our series in this great letter of joy from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. This morning we will read chapter 4, verses 10 through 20, but we'll be focusing particularly on verses 10 through 13. Hear God's word, Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and, and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Oh Lord, would you grant understanding so that we might walk according to your law, that we might walk in your ways. Oh Lord, help us. Our eyes are on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past several years, drones have become increasingly a part of our culture, whether as toys or as tools, as cameras, as delivery systems, even as weapons. As operators move joysticks and push buttons, perhaps from miles away or even on the other side of the world through satellites, the drones respond to the commands, the signals uh, that are sent by their operator. Uh, if a drone has been programmed, uh, the drone is responding to its code autonomously, acting according to that code. Uh, but as you can imagine, in our technological world, uh, hijackers have learned how to hack into drones. Uh, and they do this and steal the signals uh, that the, the, the receiver is, or the operator is sending to the drone uh, and, and they make the drone listen and respond to their signals instead of the operator. They take control of that drone and they operate it and direct it where they want to go. And so we might say that God himself is the great hacker, the great hijacker. He is the one who in his great salvation in Jesus Christ has hijacked our hearts, as it were, so that we no longer respond to the signals of the world, the devil, our own sinful flesh, but rather he becomes our operator. He becomes our controller and our commander. We respond to him. Now, of course, the analogy breaks down because we're not drones. We're not machines mindlessly uh, and automatically responding to signals sent through the sky. We're humans who have a will. And even after God saves us in our still sinful state, we are, in fact, turned back and forth between the different operators. Sometimes we want to serve the Lord with all our hearts. Other times we listen and give in to the flesh. We 
follow after our former masters. But the Bible tells us that in salvation, in his salvation, God has freed us from slavery to sin and Satan. We've been moved out of a state of bondage and into a state of freedom. In salvation, God has freed us in particular from responding to our circumstances based on those circumstances. He's freed us to be men and women who have joy and peace that is determined not by what is happening around us, but by who he is and what he has done for us. No longer are we listening to the operator and receiving the signal from the operator of the world, the flesh, and the devil, but but God is our Lord. He is our commander. He is our controller. He has taken control of our hearts so that in a word, we might have contentment no matter what is going on in the days and moments around us. This morning, I want us to think from our text about contentment. It's a topic that's inextricably linked to what we've already seen in Philippians chapter 4, the joy, the peace, the gentleness, the prayerfulness, the thanksgiving, the opposites of anxiety and harshness and prayerlessness and ingratitude, the things we ponder and meditate upon, contentment and its opposite, discontentment. These graces and sins all hang together and hold together. But unlike the topics that we looked at in the past couple of weeks, Paul brings up contentment not directly, but indirectly, even as an aside to, to what is really one of the main reasons why he wrote this letter in the first place, to give thanks to the Philippians for their generous gift through Epaphroditus, who had appeared to Paul there in the Roman prison. Now, you remember in chapter 1, perhaps, how Paul mentioned that they had shared in the gospel. Well, now, as he closes out his letter, as he brings this letter to a close, they would have been hearing it read publicly and gathered worship. He wants them to hear his final words, words of gratitude, for the concrete way that they had shown their concern for him in prison. But, but we see that Paul has to walk a bit of a tightrope, doesn't he? On the one hand, he doesn't want to say thank you in such a way that would encourage more gifts. But on the other hand, he, he doesn't want to discourage future gifts in a way that would come across as ungrateful. He knows, even as we read in these words, how generous the Philippians have been. Go read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 of the way that the Philippians gave to Paul out of their poverty out of their affliction. And so in this passage, we see his thanks qualified, as it were. In verse 11 and in verse 17, Paul uses a little phrase, not that. And after each one of those phrases, he begins to expound on some aspect that he wants the Philippians to hear. In verse 11, he's going to speak about contentment. In verse 17, he's going to speak about sacrificial giving. We'll look at the latter next week, but this morning I want us to hear Paul he had received that gift, and he had been filled with joy and appreciation. But in verses 10 to 13, Paul tells us, and he tells the Philippians, even if I had not received that gift, even if you had not given so generous, generously to me, I would have still been a man filled with joy. Because by God's grace, the Lord has taught me, he's saying, to be content no matter what my circumstances might be, whether uncomfortable or comfortable, whether unpleasant and difficult or pleasant and easy, in plenty and in want, Paul 
is saying, I've learned how to be content. And so Paul, who knew that these Philippians were struggling with anxiety, struggling with discontentment, Paul knows that we as well, if he were here, he would know our hearts. And he wants us to learn contentment. And so I want us to think this morning from this passage of of three things here in this text. First, I want you to see the scope of contentment. Secondly, I want you to see the source of contentment. And thirdly, I want you to see the school of contentment. First, the scope of contentment. Look with me at verse 12. Paul has just said that that he learned in whatever situation he was to be content. And, And listen to the way he expresses it in verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, he writes, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Do you hear what Paul's saying? The scope of his contentment is all-encompassing. His peace of heart is not dependent upon the size of his bank account, what people think about him, whether they're happy with him or unhappy with him, if his life is generally easy and uncomplicated or difficult and complicated and messy. His joy does not rise or fall on the tide of circumstances. Rather than being overwhelmed and rolled under by waves, he, like you perhaps did as a child, he rides on top of those waves all the way to shore. He's like a weather buoy out in the Gulf of Mexico, whether the, the ocean is calm or whether it's going up and down on 100-foot waves. Paul's on top of the water. His heart is at peace. His heart is at rest, whether he has riches or whether he has poverty. Now, when we think of contentment, we probably tend to think of it in relation to poverty, to deprivation, to affliction. That's the way the Bible most often talks of it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul has just referred to men who thought that godliness was a means of great gain. Uh, and Paul says, well, yes, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Again, Hebrews 13, the author writes this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, none of you in this room are facing the same poverty and hunger and thirst and deprivation that Paul was experiencing there in a Roman prison and in his ministry as a whole. Go read 2 Corinthians 11 if you wonder about the truth of those words. But this area of lack, of of want, of poverty, of, of having little or less, this is where our hearts so often struggle with contentment. When there's more month than money or even more life than money. When our dollars don't go as far as they used to because of inflation. When we watch our savings disappear on multiple big ticket expenses that we weren't budgeting for, we weren't expecting. Our cars go out at the same time. Houses tend to break down and things that, that, that you think, how am I going to afford to pay for this? A hurricane comes and destroys what you've built or what you've worked for all your life. You make a business decision that you felt was a wise one at the time. You you did all the math and you said, this is going to work. And then all of a sudden, unforeseen circumstances arise and everything is undone. 
And it's not just financial, is it? Whether we think of our health, whether we think of relationships, perhaps relationships with friends or spouse or parents or children, uh, perhaps it's your job and uh, looking for a job or losing your job or wanting a different job. In all these areas, we are tempted to discontentment. Our life does not turn out the way we thought it would or the way we wanted it to. And especially do we struggle with contentment and when we look around us and we see other people whose lives are seemingly working the way they wanted it to or the way we would have wanted our life to. When we compare ourselves with those who are prospering or when we compare ourselves to ourselves in the past when things were better for us, our hearts are tempted to be discontent. Any circumstance that's not to our liking, that we wish were different than it is, is an opportunity for discontentment and grumbling and complaining to rise in our hearts just as it did with Israel at Massa and Meribah. When they didn't have water to drink and they didn't have food to eat and they grumbled against God. Now, we have to say it's, it's true. God doesn't forbid us to, to change our circumstances. If, if he doesn't forbid us to look for a new job or uh, to increase our income or to, to work on our relationships or to strengthen our health. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 tells slaves, hey, if you can be free, be free. He tells the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3, look, some of you are, are poor because you're not working. You need to start working. Even here, Paul does receive their gift. He doesn't say, well, I'm not going to take that. He takes it. But what, is he, what he does say to them, is that even if you hadn't sent this gift, my heart would still have been able to say, I have enough. I have all that I need. Even if my circumstances don't change. And that's so often where we struggle, isn't it? But the other side of Paul's statement there in verse 12 is really even more amazing, isn't it? He knew not only how to live in want, but how to live in plenty. He knew how to live in prosperity, how to abound, how to be content in that state. You know, you think, well, I sure would like to be, learn how to be content in prosperity. But remember, what Paul means by plenty and prosperity is surely less than what we think of when we think of plenty and prosperity. And so every single one of us in this room are living in plenty and prosperity compared to what Paul would have been referring to. We are learning how to be content with much. And I hope that you've seen that sometimes that's more difficult than being content with little. Why is that? Well, think about it. If, if you're not able to be content making 50000 why do you think you'll be content with 100000 or 200000 Because the higher your income, the more you make, the more you'll realize that you've been ushered into a world of, of financial expectations. All of a sudden, there are choices available to you that were not available to you before. You can afford things, and you can almost afford things that you could not afford before. And therefore, you will want to, or feel like you have to, or the expectation will be that you will spend money on these things. And so all of a sudden, there's a much richer set of Jones to keep up with, Contentment is something that is even more difficult the more money you have, the better your life is. Because all of a sudden you'll begin to expect that it will always be that way. 
And so Paul is saying, it's not just that I've learned to be content when things are bad. I've learned to be content when things are good, even great. Another reason why contentment during abundance is more difficult is because it brings with it more difficult and more insidious temptations. To be sure, Proverbs 30 tells us the poor man is tempted to steal. But Proverbs 30 also tells us that the rich man is tempted to deny the Lord, to say, who is the Lord? I don't need him. That's what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 8. God saying to the Israelites through Moses, you're going to be tempted when you come into this land of plenty to say, look at all the wealth that I have created by the might of my hands and my hard work. And you will forget that the Lord is the one not only who gave you the wealth, but gave you the ability to make wealth. And so God warns, doesn't he, in 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so this is the scope of contentment, whether you have little or you have much. You are going to be tempted to be discontented. And so when you look into your heart, what do you see? Are you content with where things are for you right now? Are you able to say with Paul, I am at peace, I am at rest, I have enough? Or are you grumbling and complaining to the Lord and to other people about the way he has dealt with you recently? Are you trusting in your Father's wise bestowment as we sing? Or are you doubting his goodness and his wisdom and his justice? Have you gotten to the point where it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you have or have not? You see, all of us must confront the discontentment that is within our hearts. This, this past week has been a doozy. Right? For, for us, we've sent a kid to college, and we're like, wow, college really is expensive. We have bats living in our attic gable windows. Uh, our car, check engine light, makes even the mechanics scared. Right? We get a bill for an emergency room visit. Uh, I've got to go up to Arkansas yesterday to help my dad figure out where he's going to live. And you think, Lord, all this in one week, why are you doing this? Because you're about to preach on Philippians 4, 10 to 13. Like, how... Can I let you preach on this without making you realize that you haven't conquered this? You haven't freed your heart from discontentment? All of us have to focus back and say, you know what? I might think that things are, I'm doing great when things are going great. But when things turn against you, what is your heart? What is your heart saying to the Lord and to yourself and to others? Is it more responsive and controlled by the signals that are sent by your circumstances or are you controlled by the Lord and who he is and what he has done for you? So what is the solution for discontentment? Well, that brings us to the second point, the source of contentment. And you find it there in verse 13, don't you? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is one of those verses, probably the verse that is most quoted out of context in the whole Bible. It's usually quoted in, you know, athletic locker rooms and underneath athlete's eye and the black under their eye. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But that sort of 
triumphalistic view of I can bench 300 pounds, I can win the championship. It flies in the face of what Paul is speaking of here. He's referring not just to prosperity, but to poverty. His point is that he can live in any and every circumstance because of his union and his communion with Jesus Christ, who strengthens him moment by moment. There was a man in my first church who was close to death. He eventually did die while we were there in Columbia. But every time you asked him, how are you doing, Mr. Burke? He would say, I'm above ground. I'm taking nourishment every day, and I know Jesus. And it was so encouraging to hear him say that. But, you know, as I would think about what he said, I I realized, you know, he could just say, I know Jesus. What else do I need? I know Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. Because I know Jesus, that's the secret of contentment, a vital day-by-day relationship with the Lord Jesus through his word, through prayer, knowing that he will never leave you or forsake you, that he loves you, that you are being strengthened by him, that he is the the one who rules over heaven and earth, that nothing comes into your life but by his sovereign appointment. It's interesting, Paul uses this word content. It was a word that was associated with a Greek philosophy known as Stoicism, a word that that could mean self-sufficient. That is, relying on one's innate resources and, and one's own strength of will to resist the force of external circumstances. I will not be moved because I am self-sufficient. But Paul uses this word, yes, to express an independence from external circumstances, but not because of any sufficiency in himself, but because of a Christ sufficiency, because of a God dependence. It wasn't that Paul was content because he had a certain personality type or a really strong will or he had created for himself this specially crafted set of secure circumstances. No, Paul's contentment in every circumstances and every circumstance came from the fact that he was sufficient in Christ. He knew that Jesus was strengthening him to bear up whatever he had ordained for his life. Contentment comes from finding your strength, not in yourself, but in Jesus. It comes from understanding that God is a God of providence, that he is for you, that he is willing to lead you through meandering paths to accomplish what concerns you. Contentment comes from trusting the Lord. And so ultimately, when we think about discontentment, we have to realize that it is at root a doubting of God's providence and of God's goodness and love. It's being suspicious of his purposes for us. Yes, discontentment is also greed and covetousness, which is idolatry, as Ephesians 5.5 says. And so that means that even when our discontentment is, is of a financial nature, ultimately it's a violation of the first commandment. We are putting something that we want, whether money or peace or quiet or success or fame or the praise of men or just comfort in general, we're putting that in the place of God. And we become angry at God for not giving us the thing that we want or the thing that we see other people have or the thing that we used to have. Discontentment is an inward sin, a vertical sin. And so the story and the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are such a monkey wrench into this sin of discontentment. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how Nebuchadnezzar set up his idol and said, bow down to it, worship it, or you're going to get thrown into the fiery furnace. And they said, look, we're not going to worship your idol. If you throw us in there, God is able to rescue us. And then what they say, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to your idol. 
even if God doesn't change your circumstances, will your heart be at peace? Will your heart trust him and know that he is for you and that he loves you and that he cares for you and that he is strengthening you to endure? So athletes, please don't quote Philippians 4.13 unless, unless what you mean when you quote it is that Jesus is strengthening me so that even if I drop the catch, blow the play, get beat on the play, even if I lose, even if I fail, I can do all things. That's a right application of that verse. Prosperity or poverty. Christ is strengthening us, whether I win or lose, to be content in every circumstance, to have peace and have rest found not in me, not in how things are going or how they might go, but in Jesus and in his strength. Well, finally, this text reminds us not just of the the scope or the source of contentment, but the school of contentment as well. Don't miss how Paul speaks here of contentment. In verse 11 and in verse 12, he says, I have learned, I have learned the secret of being content. Contentment was something that Paul had learned, something that God had taught him. Paul was in as you are in, the school of God's hard knocks, the school of many tribulations, of much suffering. And you're in that school because that's the only way you will learn contentment. It's to oscillate back and forth between having and having not. Of going through all manner of difficulty and and ease. Seasons of hardship and seasons of abundance. Mountains high and valleys low. This is how God gives us this grace of being able to be content by having and then losing, by lacking and then gaining. And when you've experienced the wide array of life circumstances, and in them all, Jesus has strengthened you to bear up by grace and not by your willpower. When you're in this school, you begin to learn moment by moment, day by day, year by year, more and more, this is how I rest. This is how I'm at peace. And when the things pile up on you, you'll be able to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, life may not be the way I want it to be right now. Life may not have turned out the way I thought it was going to turn out. This may not be the way that it is for other people, and I wish I had their life. Right? Again, coveting your neighbor's life. This may not be what I thought life would be like for me, but God is with me. And Jesus is strengthening me to endure this life, which according to his kind providence is the life that he thinks is best for me. Some of you have been in this school. You've been in this school longer than others, and you have learned, and you are still coming to learn, the secret of contentment. So do you see the great hope that is here in this world when Paul says, I've learned it? It's not something that happens automatically. It's not something that happens immediately when we become a Christian It takes time. It's a part of God's sanctifying process of purifying us and refining us and pruning us, of making us more like Jesus. Every time you see your own discontented heart, remember that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He was never discontented. He was always perfectly at peace and content with the suffering that was his lot as the Messiah, as the one sent to save sinners from their sins. And he died for your sin of discontentment. He died to give himself so that you might be forgiven of that sin, that you might be freed by his spirit 
in order to walk in contentment. So brothers and sisters, if you find within yourself a discontented heart, do not despair, but see it as another day in God's school, another day in class. You might have thought, I thought school was done. No, this school goes on for the entirety of your life, and it's the hardest school of all, and yet it's the best school, and Jesus is the best teacher, and he will strengthen you. He will give you grace to endure whatever circumstance might come your way, whether for good or for ill, because he loves you, and you are in him. He is in you by his Holy Spirit. He will never forsake you. Let's pray and ask him for help now. Father, we pray that you would show us our sin, show us the root of our sin. Oh Lord, help us, we pray, to put our sin to death, to believe the gospel and know that our sin is forgiven. Lord, would you grant to us this knowledge, this experience of no longer having to respond to circumstances, but responding to who you are, the faithful and the true God, the steadfast King. Oh Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give us faith that we might not doubt your goodness or your love for us, that we might know that whatever you ordain is right, that you might help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Oh Lord, whether this week will bring great poverty, great destruction, Lord, we pray that it would not, that this storm would not bring that. But if it does, oh Lord, would you help us to be content and to trust that you are in control and you are good and you do all things well. Lord, we love you and we thank you for first loving us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.